Word, I'm gonna say the word. In the beginning was the word. What? Word. 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 Was the word. From the studios of KJZZ in Phoenix, Arizona, welcome to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. Here's your host, Tom Maxidon. Coming up on this first October episode of Word, we take a deep dive with the original Chicanaista and her poetry that is timely during the Halloween season. The ethos of the United States is very young and very complex. I think more than ever, we're not willing to have those conversations. Plus, it's been over three years since Chef Anthony Bourdain died by suicide. One of his longtime TV show producers talks to us about his new biography that was recently featured at the Tucson Festival of Books. Well, I guess if anything, it was closer to the editorial page than straight journalism. Tony was a great storyteller, but there was often food or alcohol involved, so I think it was not quite a traditional straight interview. But first, earlier this summer, while we were on break, Awatuki resident, teacher, and writer Marla Tai Vieda released her novella, Jasmine Breeze. It's an internal and external lyrical journey of self-discovery, secrets, joy, and pain, with sultry and exotic tones from the title character. Vieda began a recent discussion by talking about her career as a teacher. I teach ESL, and I've had students from all ages, from like five years old to like in their mid-80s. Um, so I would consider myself an educator of not just languages, but of culture. Um, I also love food. <laughs> and so, you know, with culture, you know, I experience and taste foods from around the world, whether it's here or I go around the world and, and blog about it. And I'm an adventurer. I love animals. <laughs> I, I really, I'm crazy about all animals. So I did the, um, Great white shark diving in um, Cape Town, South oh, Africa. Wow. Yeah, and I also went to um, Northern Australia to Darwin to do the um, the Cage of Death <laughs> with a, um, a giant crocodile by the name of Leo. So I guess you could say I'm an educator, adventurer, and, and, and I love to write about things. I mean, you know, this, my book has been over 25 years in the making and COVID gave me a chance to be still. Yeah, and that's a great achievement because I know for some people, it's really been tough, I think, for them to, I don't know, maybe surprise themselves during this pandemic or feel a sense of accomplishment. And, you know, when my own friends and family get down in in that regard, I, I try to say, hey, you've made it. So many people, unfortunately, have not made it. One of the primary kind of motifs about this novella, Jasmine Breeze, is wanderlust. I mean, that's one of your real-life interests, and that can certainly lead to an enriching exploration of other cultures and food and art. And I definitely see evidence of that in this novella, which is divided into three chapters. So I wonder if you could just briefly describe, first of all, who is Jasmine Breeze, and does she learn anything significant about herself between the start and end of the work? Wow, powerful question. Tom, Jasmine Breeze is a compilation of everyone. That was my aim when I wrote about her. I was like, okay, how can I reach people that really don't feel accepted in society? They they could be belong to the gay community, 
African community, maybe outside of the uh, the Christian community. Um, I wanted her to be a holistic individual that could have a perspective or worldview like an owl from all perspectives. So Jasmine is us. She's a compilation, like her grandmother came to the United States from Ireland on her father's side. They were uh, traditional Afro-American people from New Orleans. And the commonality between her lineage from Ireland and her lineage from her paternal side is that they didn't follow the traditional Christianity. You know, uh, today they feel with their language with Gaelic, their Celtic customs, the Irish are still oppressed and they're, you know, fighting for their existence. And it's the same thing with Africans around the diaspora. Jasmine is trying to let everybody know you're okay for who you are. Everybody's validated. There's no hierarchy where one culture is better than the other. So she's the equalizer of humanity. And what she learns, especially when she ends up in Spain, is that she is human. She's part of a greater system of the universe. And that's why I ended the the third chapter with John Coltrane, A Love Supreme. And what that is, everything in our universe is really guided by love. So I wanted to take it on a very high octave on the last chapter of how silly humanity is by fighting and having such condemnation over superficialities like race, religion, polity, and other nonsensical things. That was my aim. You know, we're all in this together, not as a silly cliche, but this is, this is real, you know, and, and so many of us get blinded by just shallow things, you know, we create barriers that shouldn't be, <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think nothing like travel teaches that common humanity. I mean, you know, unfortunately, some people have not had the opportunity to travel. Maybe they have a little bit in the U.S., but, yeah, I'm talking about international travel. When you really do see, for instance, like the places that you visit here in Jasmine Breeze, Spain, Morocco, Australia, Great Britain, and then places here in the U.S., these are diverse cultures, but you learn that thread of humanity throughout, and Jasmine does. Exactly. And she always sees it, and through her eyes, it's just so silly to be racist or to be homophobic. You know, so many religions will espouse, oh, you know, that's a sin to be gay or bisexual or whatever. Where is that written in a text? (laughs) You know, it shouldn't even be an issue. People should be free to be who they want to be. And, you know, it may sound pretty idealistic, but I'm striving for like kind of world peace because it's very wearing to have fighting all the time over a myriad of things that when you realize when you when you die, death is also a huge equalizer. All your material things, nothing matters. <laughs> and you'll see, well, what's really important? You know, was I a good person? What did I contribute on this earth, you know, before I leave? 
And so many people don't realize that until they're on their deathbed. And they say, wow, you know, what, what does this mean? What does it mean to be human? What does it mean? Be a kind person. Be nice to our environment. Take care of your neighbor. That's what it's about. It's not about what sect or tribe that you belong to. We are a holistic community. And um, I'm trying to pull that out, you know. Well, I think you've done that very well in this book, Jasmine Breeze. Marla Ty, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word, and I really appreciate your perspective and sharing a little bit about the book, which is out and folks can get it. Thank you. Marla Tyvieta's book, Jasmine Breeze, is available at the Mesa Public Library, and you can find out a bit more about her on our website at word.kjzz.org. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. Football season is here, and that means tailgating time. If your tailgate doesn't function like it used to, consider donating that SUV or pickup to the KJZZ Vehicle Donation Program and support the programs you love. Find out more at cars.kjzz.org. Did you know two out of every three NPR listeners prefer to purchase products and services from public radio sponsors? You can see the benefits of becoming a KJZZ corporate sponsor at sponsor.kjzz.org. Count me in. It's a way for you to financially support the award-winning reporting, entertainment, and music that you hear on KJZZ. Just go to countmein.kjzz.org. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Our next guest, Ana Castillo, is known as the original Chicanaista, a term introduced by her, which is a combination of the words Chicana and Feminista. Her recently released book of poetry, My Book of the Dead, is a really tough one as this pandemic continues. Castillo lives in southern New Mexico, and as a scholar, fiction writer, and poet, I led our recent discussion by asking which type of writing she likes best. I started out as a poet, and I wrote poetry for many years with, with this uh, idea in my head that to be a good poet, that was all I could do. Although... I had started out um, doing um, uh, visual work, artwork. I got my bachelor's degree in art and um, I enjoyed storytelling since I was a kid, writing little stories. So poetry is my first written love, if you will. I find fiction easier, nonfiction, less easy, Critical essays really hard, so well, they're all a cha- they're all a challenge for me. Even if I say it's easy uh, to approach, it's still a, it, it, each genre has its own rules, if you will. It's right. its own its own presence, its own path. So each one is a challenge. And poetry, although it was my first written love isn't the easiest form for me, but I'll still take it on when I decide that's what I want to do. Well, and I would say so. You definitely took it on for this book, My Book of the Dead. I wanted to read uh, back to you what one reviewer wrote, in part anyway. It says, uh, My Book of the Dead offers us the consolations of poetry in the face of neo-fascism, entrenched racism, surveillance states, and financial inequity. The book is comprised of nearly 50 poems, and it's divided into three parts. 
as I just indicated there in the review, the topics are pretty wide ranging. What was your thinking in splitting this into three units? I had all these poems. I was working alone. It was a personal project. I remember putting them all out on my bed, printing them out and putting them out on the bed. And like, what am I going to do with this now? (laughs) And uh, so I said, well, these kind of fit into this form of thinking and maybe these here. And so that's kind of like a rustic answer to your question, uh, which uh, started out this, this desire to organize. I'm also an editor. And so I thought, well, you know, if I threw all these poems at an editor, what would they do? Um, so I, I started that way and it seemed to work for me. And ultimately it worked in terms of submitting it to a publisher. They went with it. There's a, a beginning, middle and end with this. And they were written within the period of about 10 years, closer to within five years. And so that's where the, the categorizing came. It's, uh, it's like, what am I first thinking about this? What am I secondly thinking about this? And where will I go with this thinking? Um, my Book of the Dead implies that there's death involved, obviously. Right. And it covers a wide range of death. But also we have to always walk away as that person who wrote that lovely uh, blurb on my book, the consolations of poetry. So if poetry is about melancholy, reflections, regrets, where do we go from here? And so there must be some form of hope or a, a revision or a rethinking of a new way of looking at things. And so I think that's the best I can give you as far as the three sections go. Most of the poems are written in English, but there are a handful of those written in Spanish. And some of the publicity for My Book of the Dead suggests that your decision to include both reflects the ethos of both America and Mexico. But Spanish and English are vital in my life every day. So uh, writing in Spanish or writing in English is, is the same for me. Um, I choose to write in English because this is the United States, because people going to school here will be reading and writing in English, and it's the official language of this country. And so the ethos of the United States is very young uh, and very complex. And I think more than ever today, We're not willing to have those conversations. We don't want to expand beyond the borders right now, which I don't think personally is helpful to us to to isolate ourselves and think only English is the language that we can address and and talk in. I wondered if you would take us out with a short poem from the book, if you could. So this is my 2012 poem, and it's called when snow turns to rain and it is still winter. I am a Bedouin woman, Burka weighs and drags, goats graze lazily along red stone, my gaze afar. He was a cheerful boy, my son the poet, grew tall like the poplar with eyes, fiery as embers, my son. I mutter, as if he just left the room, scent of his soap, lingering, 
my son. I start each conversation as though my heart were whole as a pomegranate clinging to its branch, alive. My son writes verses and lives like a monk among hyenas. He prays, meditates, say it, my son, locked behind walls. I once climbed the jagged hills of Petra, hid within its caves. My son sleeps on a piss-stained bunk, once a boy who had a warm bed, milk, the breast of his mother upon which to rest his head. He read books and played with other children. On the phone now, men are loud and he shouts, Ma, my son. Each bead I pray upon at dawn has his name. My lips murmur, God in your heaven, the chittering of birds, the desert floor, all the same. Why does the world not long for him as I? God made us strong, this thing called mother. The rain and torrents are Mary's tears that cleanse, cleanse the weary. My son, soon my eyes will be illuminated with your presence. That's a heavy poem. Why did you want to include it in this book? Well, it was the only poem that I wrote in 2012. It speaks to a lot of things that were, are going on in this country. On a personal basis, I have visited Petra. I was in Jordan, so I did connect with that. I also have connected with the Arab aspect of my personal ancestry. It is a tough read. Again, it's called My Book of the Dead. Ana Castillo, thank you so much for coming to Word. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. You can find out a bit more about Ana Castillo on our website at word.kjzz.org. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. Hey, it's Peter Sagal. Some people think that smart speakers are a futuristic surveillance device straight out of George Orwell, constantly monitoring you as you engage in your most private actions and conversations. Well, they are. But did you know they're also a radio? That's right. You can ask your smart speaker to play NPR to hear your local station and all your favorite NPR shows. And it will. It will also report you to the central ministry. But why not enjoy yourself while you still can? These days, making connections takes just a few taps. If you want to share something that you think KJZZ should know, fill us in. You can find all the ways to send in a tip. Just go to tips.kjzz.org. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. The death of Anthony Bourdain by suicide in 2018 shocked many. His work in the culinary and journalism worlds loomed large. A new biography of him entitled In the Weeds was just released last week, and author Tom Vitale, who worked with the celebrated chef, writer, and TV personality for many years, takes readers around the world and behind the scenes with Bourdain, as the book subtitle aptly puts it. 
Tom appeared virtually at last week's Tucson Festival of Books, and that's where I began a recent discussion by asking him what he discussed with John Birdsall, biographer of another well-known foodie, James Beard. We talked about a taco tamale pupusa misunderstanding that happened back in 2009 when <laughs> John uh, <laughs> helped us out on a shoot. And, uh, yeah, we talked a lot about Tony. Yeah, and of course, Tony was famously at the Titan Missile Museum, and I was watching an interview a little bit earlier about that. As far as this book, In the Weeds, it's hefty, at nearly 300 pages, and that seems kind of analogous to Anthony Bourdain's life. One I think that many viewers, you know, sort of felt like they knew intimately because he put so much of himself into his work. I'm curious, though, what's something that might surprise people about Anthony? Well, he was definitely shyer than people would would have imagined, I think, because he could be very disarming, but he was kind of a solitary guy a lot. He also loved uh, Popeye's chicken wings and mac and cheese. It was one of his guilty pleasures. <laughs> That's something else I guess people know a little bit less, despite all the, the high-end or the out-there food that he'd eaten over the years. That was a, that was a favorite. That's funny because I know a really well-renowned chef on the island of St. Thomas, and he's just known for these amazing dishes. But, like, he has this secret love of junk food as well, like <laughs> pizza rolls. That's funny to hear. I wanted to read an excerpt from In the Weeds, which just came out. And it's actually relatively early in the book, and this is about the experience in Myanmar, which, of course, continues to be in the news. Yeah. Here it is. I look at this as an essay, Tony said. I spent a little over a week in Myanmar, Burma. This is what I saw. This is what it felt like. But something that we very much have to consider is that at the end of this week, we're all going back to New York, where I can have a nice frappuccino and edit the show any way I want. But what we have to consider is whoever helped us off camera, Whoever we hung out with, whoever we saw, whoever was nice to us, whoever associated with us during our time out here, the point is we don't pay the price for that show. Everybody who helped us could very well pay that price, so that's something we really got to balance, especially when you know we're not journalists. And that line really strikes me. Uh, he goes on to say it's a very real concern, and it's something that we're thinking about, and we'll have to think about it later. What happens to the people that we leave behind. Mm -hmm. Tony may not have considered himself a journalist, but I think some of us who are in this profession do consider him to have been one, plus a chef. I mean, he was a great storyteller in his own words. Well, I guess if anything, it was closer to the editorial page than straight journalism. You know, we were definitely talking to people and hearing their stories, and Tony was a great storyteller, but, um, you know, there was often food or alcohol involved. So I think it was not quite a traditional straight interview. Right. I think it's undeniable that the manner of Tony's death shocked many. Personally, it hit me like a freight train for many reasons. And I didn't even know him, but you did. Was in the weeds, at least in part, an attempt for you to process not only his death, but how he lived life as well? Yeah, I think it was in a lot of ways. Not that I necessarily realized that at the time when I started writing it. I, I think I kind of just didn't want the whole thing to be over. And in a weird way, it sort of kept it alive, writing the book. It really felt like um, when the pandemic raged on outside, it really kind of felt like I was still 
there in a certain way. What's one thing that you miss most about Tony, and how well did you know him offset? Well, we all spent a lot of time together over the years. I worked on about 100 episodes, and that was 80 different trips with him over um, a span of 12 years of traveling together. So I knew him pretty well, and um, I think I miss his sense of humor quite a bit. He was always so desperately and wickedly funny about everything. Uh, even if it was a tough or scary or uncomfortable spot we were in, he always made it very funny and a great sense of humor. Did he ever cook for you? He did uh, cook a few times for us. There was one time in Greece when he made this really big meal for the crew. It was very um, nice. But he definitely did not want to be somewhere and be on TV cooking any local cuisine that sort of wasn't his to cook in a certain way. He was very respectful that way. He said he'd leave the cooking to the experts. He liked to make a chicken salad, you know, over the summer. He made that a few times, Sim- simpler things like that at home. Right. And as far as the production process goes, what was sort of the prevailing mindset in terms of why we would want to go to a certain place and how much of a role did Tony play in setting the course for each show and for each, I don't want to say topic, but maybe each flavor. I mean, a a huge role of all the places that we went were someplace that Tony wanted to go. That might've been somewhere he'd always wanted to go his whole life, or it might've been somewhere that he'd heard about at a cocktail party or on a previous episode that someone had recommended. So everywhere we went, he always had an interest in going. It was very much driven by him. A lot of chefs, of course, have made their celebrity on the Food Network, frankly. And it was really the writing of his book that led him into TV, correct? Yeah, Kitchen Confidential. And his first show actually was on the Food Network. It was a lot simpler back then. But after two seasons, when the Food Network wanted to cancel the international destinations uh, in favor of barbecue across the United States, which was a lot cheaper and rated better, Tony quit. So there really was a lot of hard work and strategy that got him to where he was. Uh, and that, you know, took took a lot of trial and error over a nearly two decade long period. And you worked with him on a hundred episodes. You said, uh, "Is there mm-hmm. a couple of favorites that you could signpost for us?" Uh, well, there's there's so many, and the, the difference between um, a trip I really enjoyed versus a, a good episode wasn't always the, that wasn't always the same thing. Right. But uh, I really enjoyed traveling to Southeast Asia. Colombia, and we had an amazing trip to Iran. It was just incredibly special. There, there are so many, though. If you could tell a young person who's thinking about being a chef, what do you think you might tell them as if it were coming from Tony himself? You know, Kitchen Confidential, Tony had written it. He sort of believed it to be a cautionary tale. And so when he'd hear from people that we'd run into how they decided to become a chef because they'd read that book. He always sort of uh, chuckled <laughs> and said he hoped they really knew what they were getting themselves into. So it's, uh, it's definitely got to be something you really love doing because it's a lot of hard work and it can be a very thankless job. But obviously it is something that's very meaningful to, to many, many people. Well, I think that's the case with this book as well, Tom. In the Weeds, Around the World, and Behind the Scenes with Anthony Bourdain. It's just a fabulous look back 
at an amazing life. And of course, you got to be part of it. Tom, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word and spending some time with us. Thank you so much for having me. You can find out a bit more about In the Weeds by Tom Vitale on our website at word.kjzz.org. We appreciate your support of original KJZZ podcasts and programming like Word, portions of which have been nominated for Edward R. Murrow and Public Media Journalists Association Awards. If you're already a member of KJZZ, thanks very much. If not, it's easy to become one. Please consider a gift of $5, $10, or maybe even $20 a month to support the news, information, and entertainment programming that you listen to at KJZZ through a variety of mediums, whether on the radio at 91.5, maybe the free KJZZ mobile app, or at kjzz.org. Whatever is in your budget is the right amount. You can find a link on how to make your gift of support on our website. Thanks so much for listening to Word, and we'll catch up later this month for another discussion. I'm Tom Maxidon. Word. Word? Word. What's the word? Thanks for listening to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. You can find all episodes online at word.kjzz.org or wherever you get your podcasts.